works. He puts man, brings man upon the scene. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This is the only place in the scripture where we can find a, a, a definitive statement as to why God created man. I know that, uh, uh, well, I've heard a lot of things over the years, and I'm sure you have as well, that sound real poetic and touchy-feely kind of sentiment. But really, the only thing that the Bible says specifically or directly about why God created man is that he wanted him to have authority. God had created a paradise. After the end of the six days of creation, he looked and he said he saw that it was very good. In other words, he saw that it was perfect. There was nothing that could hurt or harm man in any way whatsoever. There was nothing that could bring him trouble or affliction or any kind of difficulty. He created man and put him in a perfect environment and instructed him to have authority over everything he made. Now, folks, if God wanted the earth to be perfect in its origin or at its creation, what would make us think that God wanted us to be any different than he made Adam and Eve or for the earth to be any different than the way he created it? If he created it perfect in every form, in every way, in every detail, since God never changes and his will never changes, that's what he wants for the earth now. When he placed man in the Garden of Eden and told him to have authority over the earth, exercise authority over the earth, notice he didn't say, if anything goes wrong, come tell me. Notice he didn't say, if you find something out of order or if something begins to develop outside of the way that it was created to function, call me and we'll have a conference about it. He left man the responsibility to oversee the earth and to fix whatever needs fixing. Now, I'm not sure what that would be because since God created things to be perfect, it would be hard to imagine that things would deteriorate from the way or the manner that God created them. But nevertheless, he gave man authority to preside over a perfect creation. Now, Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. Now, folks, God's not an Indian giver. If he gave the earth to mankind to be in the beginning, then the earth is still under our authority or our dominion now. Now, some might say, yeah, but when Adam and Eve fell, then Satan gained authority over the earth. Well, did he? Let's look over at Luke chapter 4. This is talking about immediately following Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River. He returns in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. But before he comes back, it tells us that Jesus was tempted of the devil in the 40 days that he was out in the wilderness. 
and he was hungry and the devil tempted him to command the stones to be made bread and Jesus answered him saying it is written that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word of God notice in verse 5 and the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time now that must have been the kingdoms of the world that existed when, uh, in Jesus time when this event took place I don't see anything in scripture that would tell us that he had the authority or the power to show Jesus the Babylonian kingdom many hundreds of years before Jesus was born or the Assyrians or the Greeks or anybody else for that matter but apparently Satan showed him the kingdoms of the world of the present world in a moment of time and notice what he said verse 6 the devil said unto him all this power will I give thee and the glory of them for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answering and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then there was one other temptation about throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Two of the temptations were challenging who Jesus was. Jesus, are you going to command these stones to be made bread? Well, Jesus could have done that or else it wouldn't have been a bona fide temptation. Then the other one, the last one according to Luke, when he instructs him to, or challenges him to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, Satan even quotes some scripture himself. He said, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Here's something else where he's challenging Jesus to use the power of God in an unfruitful manner. But one of them, one of the temptations, the middle one according to Luke, Matthew gives us a little different order of the, of the three, same three temptations, just a little different order. But the second one according to Luke is that he will give him, the devil will give Jesus power over the kingdoms of the earth. Well, folks, that's part of what Jesus came for. But he didn't come to receive it that way. But what I want you to see, focus on for a moment in Luke chapter 4, verse 6. The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. That is delivered unto me. Now, we know in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's his only purpose here operating in this earthly realm he wants to kill he wants to steal and he wants to destroy well if the devil had power over all the earth if the devil was given or transferred the dominion that mankind was given by God over the earth and over everything God created then why didn't the devil just kill everybody at once why didn't the devil just steal from everybody at once why doesn't the devil just destroy everybody and everything all at one time? If this is saying that he has been given the authority that God gave to Adam and Eve, then it would certainly be within his power. So what would hold him back? Well, we've been talking some on Sunday mornings about the end times, and we see that, great, that Satan's greatest intent and the thing that he's working toward more than anything else is a one world government ruled and reigned over by the Antichrist. But the Bible says that he can't do it. 
The Bible says as long as the church is here, the power of God in the church, as disjointed as the church is, as ineffective in many ways the church is, the power of God, the power in the name of Jesus residing within us is sufficient to hold the devil back from his greatest work. He's had these thousands of years to work toward his expected end or the climax of his power upon the earth. But he can't do it. And the reason he can't do it is because the authority was of the earth was given unto men. Whether we're exercising our authority or not, whether the church is walking in the, the level or the measure of authority that we should or not, the devil does not have power to overrule God's kingdom or man who he's put in charge of it. That's a fascinating thing, folks. Well, if the devil said that it was delivered unto him, was he lying? Well, Jesus didn't seem to think so. If any one of these temptations had been a lie or blown out of proportion, Jesus would have had every right to call him on it because Jesus certainly knew what his authority was. Jesus knew what the devil's, the limit to the devil's power and what boundaries were placed upon him. So here where the devil says it was delivered unto him, how does the devil work? Notice again, he's talking about governments, he's talking about kingdoms. We see in the Bible in several places how there are unseen forces motivating and influencing people in government here on this earth. Whereas in, in one place, for example, the Bible talks about a prince of a certain kingdom being ruled over by Satan himself, who was the king of that same named kingdom. So the things that we see going on around us, particularly in the area of government or pertaining to people that are unsaved, we recognize that there are evil forces, unseen forces, demonic forces behind them, pushing them and influencing them and driving them forward into the devil's agenda. So when the devil says, I've been delivered all the power of the kingdoms of the earth, how far does that power go? If, it, if that power was absolute, then it would be impossible for Israel to ever have a, a godly king. But we know that there were several, not enough, but several in the line of kings of Israel and later Judah that were godly men and women exercising authority and according to righteousness well how could that be if the devil has the power over governments ultimate power over governments and kingdoms then how could a, uh, a righteous king ever rise up see where the devil where the bible says the devil has been given authority over kingdoms he has a right to tempt and to influence and to affect any government ruler but he has that same authority where you and I are concerned. He can't make us do anything any more than he can make rulers of the kingdoms of the earth do anything. He's left to influence them or to pressure them through deceit and lies. So when the, devil said, or when the Bible says, the devil claims it himself, that the glory and the power of the kingdoms of the earth was delivered unto him, it can't be absolute power. It can't be against the will of man. Folks, man's will is the most powerful force on this planet. When you team up the will of man with the power in the name of Jesus, you've got something that the devil cannot counter. 
He just can't overcome that. Now, I want you to look with me over to John chapter 5. I'm going to read a lot of the fifth chapter. You remember that John wrote this at the end of his life. Some 50 years or more after Jesus was raised from the dead. The other three gospels and all the writings of Paul and Peter, everything else in the New Testament was already written and circulated, well-known, common knowledge among the churches in the Middle East, at least, and it spread out to other places as well, to the Gentile nations as well. So when John in his old age, somewhere around 100 A.D., probably closer to 95 A.D., really, but when he writes those things, when he writes by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he knows that the other gospel writers have written about certain things and certain events. And John seems to take a different tack. He's not trying to reiterate or, re or repeat what the other gospel writers wrote about. He's trying to give us additional light. And can you imagine for somebody like John, Peter too to some extent, but John outlived him for such a long time. Can you imagine John, the things that the Holy Ghost would bring to his remembrance, things that he didn't consider important early on when he was with Jesus in his earthly ministry, but now some 60 or 70 years later, he remembers back to these things as if he's trying to tie up loose ends. Let us know that Jesus was even more than the three gospel writers before him presented him as. So John chapter 5, verse 1, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now think about that, folks. It doesn't have to be a minor condition. It can be something small. It can be something great as far as sickness and disease is concerned. When the power of God stirs the waters, when the angel operating according to the will and the plan and the purpose of God, stirs the water. The healing power of God is there to cure and fix anything and everything that takes place, but just one at a time. So Jesus talks to this man. He finds a certain man who was there and had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? We don't know how old this guy was, but he's had this infirmity for 38 years. The way that the, the language is used, it seems to imply that he wasn't born with this condition, but that it was something that came on him at some earlier stage in his life, perhaps. And Jesus saw that he'd been a long time in that case, not only with the, the um, crippling disease or the infirmity that he's had for 38 years, but also he's been a long time at the pool of Bethesda and he can't get into the water quick enough before somebody else beats him to it. And only the first one, only the, the first one that goes into the water is helped by the power of God. 
So when Jesus saw that he'd been in that case for a long time, he asked him, wilt thou be made whole? Now we know from our study of the four gospels that there are 19 cases of healing that are identified, 19 different healing events. Now that doesn't include multitudes or the 10 lepers, for example, when larger groups of people were healed. And it would seem to us, I guess, that there are more than 19, but if you divide them out and separate them, you'll find that a lot of the gospel writers wrote about the same one, so you can't double count them. But of those 19 individual cases of healing, three out of four, 75% of the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry were either healed on their own faith, where Jesus credited their faith, your faith has made you whole, for example, go in peace, and behold of thy plague, as he told the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. 75% of the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry were either healed on their own faith, which, is, uh, which the Bible gives a direct attribution to, or through their actions that the Bible doesn't identify faith, but it implies that faith was used. Now, when we consider that, we have to recognize that we're not going to get any better results than Jesus did. And there were people that Jesus could not help until he made an adjustment or helped them make an adjustment in their own faith. You remember in Mark chapter 9 where the father brings his son to Jesus and Jesus isn't with the disciples. He's coming back from the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And the father is there questioning the disciples along with some of the scribes and the religious leaders and Jesus comes and asks what's going on and the father said I brought my son he's grievously tormented with the devil and I brought my son to your disciples that they could cast this thing out but they couldn't do it well that implies the disciples tried and failed and Jesus turns to the father and says oh faithless generation how long shall I suffer you bring him unto me when Jesus talks about the faithless generation, he's not talking about the disciples. He's identifying a lack of faith or unbelief on the part of the Father. Now, Jesus had enough wisdom and enough experience in ministering to people that he knew that faith was necessary. Even though he was the Son of God, even though he had the Spirit of God without measure, even though all things were possible to him or to happen through him, he knew that it always took faith to activate the power. So if the power, and up to that point in time, Jesus had already delegated authority over sickness and disease to his disciples. So they had the power, they had the ability to do it. But they weren't schooled or experienced enough in this to recognize that there was, it was necessary for there to be faith on the, on the Father's part as well. So when Jesus sees the, the little boy, the Father brings the little boy to him. This evil spirit that's controlling him threw him down in the midst and tore him and he must have been having some kind of seizure type thing or whatever. The father cries out and says, have mercy on me, Lord. If you can help us, if you can do anything, help us. Well, Jesus turns that right back on them, on him, the father. He says, if I can. Folks, if Jesus couldn't, the father wouldn't have brought his son to him to begin with. If the father hadn't heard that Jesus was healing, and casting devils out of people, which was widely known, then why would he have brought his son to Jesus in the first place? So Jesus identifies 
the failings of the man in the area of faith. He says to the father, if I can do something, then he turns it around on him and says, if you can believe, then all things are possible to them that believe. The father said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that doesn't sound like a great statement of faith to me, but it was at least enough for Jesus to work with. Jesus cast the spirit out of that little boy and delivered him back to his father. And here in John chapter 5, the first thing Jesus looks for is faith. He comes to the man, recognizes the length of time that he's been in this condition, and then he asked him the question, Wilt thou be made whole? This was a perfect opportunity for the, the impotent man to say, Yes, I believe I will, and give the Lord something to work with. But he begins to tell him his problems. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but if I was this fellow in this fellow's condition, I would have been laying just on the edge of the pool so that all I had to do was roll in before anybody else got to it. I would have made some kind of effort or created some kind of situation where I would have been the first one in that pool. He knew where the power of healing was. It was in the angel troubling the water. But as happens so many times when people are afflicted of the enemy, because of the enemy's influence and the enemy's lies, they start making excuses for why they can't be healed. And that's what this man did as well. He said, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said unto him, not as a result of his faith, certainly, but here's something that's initiated by Jesus, by the Holy Ghost, in spite of the man's lack of faith. Jesus said unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He that has made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then they asked him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. He didn't know who had healed him. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Now folks, here right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, is a healing event, a Holy Ghost event that would have declared with certainty that Jesus was the Messiah. And so many times we've heard throughout the years from churches and from preachers that Jesus healed to prove that he was the Son of God. Well, if Jesus was out to prove that he was the Son of God, he missed a great opportunity for other people to find out here. Jesus conveyed himself away. Now, I wonder why he did that. I wonder if it had anything to do with the fact that the man who may have been in the worst condition of anybody that was gathered around these pools of Bethesda was typical of the rest of the group. Maybe there wasn't any faith in the whole group. And so instead of starting a, to preach and teach about God and about God's goodness and about the kingdom of God coming to the earth, Jesus just left with a whole bunch, five porches full of sick people. 
he left without them receiving a thing. A lot of people have the idea that because Jesus was the Son of God, he healed everybody that was sick. Well, he healed everybody that came to him to be healed. He healed everybody that had faith to receive healing. But there were a lot of people in Jesus' ministry, throughout Jesus' ministry, that were not healed. We know in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus went to his own hometown of Nazareth, and he preached and said that he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to heal the sick. They wouldn't receive him. They thought they knew him because he grew up in that town. So they said, we know his mother and we know his father, and the Messiah is to be born of a virgin. So they thought they had information that would rule out the fact and the reality that Jesus was the Christ. So they wouldn't accept anything from him. There were only a few sick, uh, sickly folks. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament words says of that word sickly, not too much wrong with them. He did get a couple of healing results in that category, but nothing more. There were no blind eyes opened in Nazareth. There were no cripples that were healed in Nazareth because they refused to accept him. It says in Mark's chapter 6, Mark's account of this, it says, and he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. Now, I know it blows through a lot of people's doctrine to, uh, to assume or to insinuate that Jesus, who was the Son of God, didn't have all power in every situation. He didn't have the power to heal in Nazareth. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now, whoever was sick in the town of Nazareth was robbed by the attitude of the people, the unbelief of the people, even though Jesus had the power to bring God's healing to them. So here Jesus has conveyed himself away. He didn't even make sure that the, the crippled guy that was healed, the impotent man, even knew who he was. Verse 14, it says, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now, if Jesus is telling us, or the Holy Ghost is telling us through what Jesus said, it's very possible that this man was of some age, a teenager perhaps, or older, 38 years before, because Jesus identifies sin as bringing a worse thing upon him. That implies, not definitively, but at least it implies that this sickness that he had, this infirmity that he had for 38 years, had something to do with his own actions or his own sins. Now, when you say things like that, people get all twisted up. And it certainly gives the devil opportunity to accuse you and me of having some sin in our life that prevents the power of God from restoring us. But if you look at the only thing that the Bible says about healing in the church, in James chapter 5, it says, The prayer of faith shall heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, they shall be forgiven him. So James says, James tells us that even if our sickness or our condition is a result of our own sin, our own wrongdoing, the prayer of faith will not only forgive that sin, but God doesn't hold it against us and will raise us up to divine health. So if James, by the instruction of the Holy Ghost, was telling the church, that we shouldn't let personal sin keep us from expecting or asking God in faith, 
asking God for healing for our bodies. If he didn't want that for them, why would the Holy Ghost want anything more from us? So afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon thee. Then the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now I want you to realize this, folks. Back up and look at verse 17 again. Jesus said, My father works hitherto, and I work. Doing the works of God here on the earth is the equivalent of making yourself equal with God. Now, you remember where we started over in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Those two phrases, after our own likeness and in our own image, those two phrases literally mean God made mankind, made Adam to be an exact duplicate or copy of himself. Now, that didn't mean that Adam had power over the whole universe, but it means that he had everything that he needed the spirit, the character, and the power of God because he was made in God's image. He was made, man was made, or is made, an exact duplicate of God himself. That means the same spirit that was of God was in Adam. You remember when God created Adam, he spoke life into him, breathed life into him, and the King James translation says he became a living soul. Well, what did Jesus or what did God breathe into Jesus? I'm sorry, I'll get it here in a minute. What did God breathe into Adam if not his own spirit? And the spirit of God was the source or the origin of Adam's life. Here we see the same situation where Jesus is claiming to be doing the works of God. And the Jews get twisted out of shape because he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, I want you to notice what this healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda was the backdrop for. Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself. This is after he's been accused by the religious leaders of making himself equal with God. Jesus said, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth unto him all things that himself doeth. Keep that in mind. I want to show you a verse of Scripture in just a minute that's going to make this comparison concerning us. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises up the dead... And quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. Now why is he talking about judgment being delivered to him or committed to him? Because the reason, the whole reason that the man at the pool of Bethesda in the earlier verses of the chapter was healed was because Jesus delivered judgment unto the infirmity that held him bound. See, we think of judgment as standing before the judgment seat of God 
where God says, well, you did this right, but all these hundred other things you did wrong. The believer won't even have to stand in the judgment seat or before the judgment seat of God in that respect. Our works will be tried by fire, identified whether they were earthly works or spiritual, spiritually based works. But here we're talking about Jesus executing judgment. It's not executing judgment upon men, upon people. Because the Bible clearly said God would have everybody to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus died for the sins of the world. That means he died for everybody. Now, not everybody will receive that. Not everybody knows that. But eternal life is available to everybody because of the judgment that Jesus issued. Here he issued judgment upon sickness and disease, whatever this infirmity was. But when Jesus went to the cross, he executed judgment on the devil and his works. So Jesus goes on to say, For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Well, we know he's talking about passed from spiritual death unto eternal life, or the life of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. We have to assume that he's still talking about spiritual death and entering into eternal life. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. That's how Jesus said that he was equal with God. That's why he claimed openly for God that God was his father and proved it through the works that he did. Nobody ever did any of the works that Jesus did and that's what set him apart. For as the father has life in himself, so has he given to the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Here he's talking about physical death, not just spiritual death. And shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of the damned, or resurrection of damnation. Jesus said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him, the will of the Father which has sent me. Now I want to remind you of a couple of verses that we read earlier. Here in verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Notice verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. I want you to look with me over to John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Ghost, said, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. 
and he will show you things to come. Jesus said the Father showed him all the things that he does. Here it says the Holy Ghost will show you things to come. He shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Notice verse 15. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and show it unto you. Just as Jesus said the Father showeth him all things that he does. Jesus says the Holy Ghost will show us all things that had been delivered unto Jesus. And the only thing you can find that has not been delivered unto Jesus is the date and the time of the rapture of the church. That's the only thing that the Bible ever specifies that Jesus doesn't know himself. Everything else, though, the Holy Ghost will reveal it to us and empower us to accomplish. Now, the reason I wanted to point that out is quite simply, it's easy for us to put Jesus on a pedestal and set such a high mark for the things that he did that no man would ever attain to. Now, granted, as far as Jesus' victory over sin and being a perfect man and a perfect sacrifice, nobody can compare with that. Nobody on the planet ever would or ever will compare with that. But just as it says the reason that the Father shows Jesus everything that he does so that Jesus could set an example for us was because the Father loved the Son. Here it says that the Holy Ghost will show us the same things and I firmly believe that we ought to all believe, actively believe for the Holy Ghost to show us the things of God. Show us things to come. But the scripture says just as much here that the Father loves us because we're in the Son just as he loved Jesus. Now, I also want to point to another scripture over in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus healed this man at the pool of Bethesda, there were questions about his authority. And the fact that he healed the, the uh, crippled man, the impotent man, on the Sabbath day stirred a lot of the Jews up. And that was not too long before the resurrection or before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so it gave the Pharisees and the Sadducees even more ammunition for what they thought they could use against him. But do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus comes to the uh, city of Caesarea Philippi. And in the place that, uh, outside the, the city limits of Caesarea Philippi, you can still see some ruins there today. It was a place where there were a, a multiplicity of different gods that you could worship or offer sacrifice to. It was kind of a, uh, an outdoor mall for idol worship. And Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And the answer came from the disciples. Well, some say you're Jeremiah or one, some say you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter answers and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered in verse 17. Jesus answered and said, blessed art thou Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter's not the rock that the church is built on. The rock that the church is built on is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. So he said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we could make a pretty quick list of what those things might be, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
One might be the word. One might be the power in the name of Jesus. There might be other things that we could add to that list as well. But one thing that he said concerning the keys of the kingdom, and I believe that it has to do with the, the, the purpose and the exercise of those keys of the kingdom. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I've heard some squirrely doctrine and squirrely teaching on uh, binding and loosing and different things like that. But to put all that aside, we can certainly identify binding and loosing as an exercise of authority. Jesus is saying that whatever we bind on the earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. And if you think about it, when Jesus told the impotent man in John chapter 5, rise, take up your bed and walk, he's simply saying this 38-year infirmity goes no further. He puts a stop sign in front of the devil's uh, actions against this man's body. He says, that's enough. Go no further. Brother Hagin used to use as an illustration when he was teaching the believer's authority the example of a policeman directing traffic. He talked about the difference between the two words that are used in Scripture, one meaning authority and one meaning power. Well, he talks about, and we've all experienced this as well, Sometimes, no matter what the light says, the policeman standing in the intersection will wave us over, wave us on, or stop us, even if we have a green light. We obey the policeman because of the authority that he has. Now, he doesn't have the power to hold back even the smallest of one of the cars that are in, in the road or on the road. But he has authority to direct traffic and even make us violate whatever the red light or the traffic signal is telling us to do. In the same way, Jesus exercised authority, heavenly authority, given to earth, given to mankind, when he bound that infirmity from going any further in the man's life. He loosed the goodness of God and bound the infirmity. Now I want you to look with me to one last thing. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus begins speaking in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. Remember Jesus said the rock that he builds his church on is the knowledge that he's the Christ. Well, I wonder if that rock has anything to do with the story Jesus is telling us in Matthew 7. It, the house was built on a rock, and so the, when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew, it beat upon the house, but it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now I want you to realize that he wasn't, the people weren't astonished at Jesus. They were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching. Well what about his teaching made them so filled with astonishment? Verse 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
Now, there are a lot of translations that will translate this in such a way that you think that they're saying that they recognize Jesus has authority. Well, if that was the case, they wouldn't have been marveling at his teaching. I could certainly understand if it said it came to pass when the people had ended, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at him. That would make perfect sense. But it says they were astonished at his doctrine. And then it tells us why. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice the word one is in italics. Anytime you find in the King James the word in italics, it means the translators added it to the text. In this case and in every other case, I would imagine they're trying to help us to understand what's being said or what was written to us. And by and large, I think they did a, a, a really good job. But here's one place where they failed us. Because Jesus wasn't teaching them that he as one person had authority. The word as is the word how. The word having means to hold. So it says that he taught them. They were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God included to a great degree teaching that man had authority, teaching that God had made man and given him dominion over the earth. One of the outstanding characteristics of Jesus' teaching was that he told people that by faith through the exercise of their authority they could dictate what the devil was able to do in their lives we can act just like the traffic cop with the devil no matter whether it looks like he's got a green light we can tell him to halt in his place we can simply hold up our hand in the name of jesus based on the word and that's what jesus did when he was tempted three times he was tempted with different things three times he answered it is written he used the word of god he held up his hand just like a traffic cop would and stopped the devil's traffic over toward him or against him. Well, if that was how it worked for Jesus, wouldn't we expect it to work for us the same way? They were astonished at his doctrine, for Jesus taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Folks, you have authority. Your authority is released by what you believe in your heart and say with your mouth. The word of God is given to us to create a foundation of truth in our lives so that by believing it, by acting on it, we can simply speak and say, here's what the Bible says things should be. Remember, God wanted the earth to be a perfect existence for his, his man, Adam. He wants it to be a perfect existence for you and me too. The difference is we've got the devil to contend with and Adam didn't have anything to contend with until the fall. But God's, God's will hasn't changed one bit. God's still the same as he was in the beginning. He'll always be the same. He always wants good and blessings, perfect health, restoration of every good thing into your life. But it takes faith, just like it took faith with the man who brought his son to Jesus. It takes faith. We have to believe in our heart and say with our mouth, but all things that we ask believing shall be done, for nothing is impossible to him that believes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the authority that's been delivered unto us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're given to us to show us things to come. Just as you showed Jesus the things of the Father, show them unto us too, Lord. 
Holy Spirit, we count on you. We rely on you as our helper to show us things to come. Open our eyes to the truth. Show us the reality of who we are in the word of God. Show us the reality of God's plan and purpose that he wishes to be carried out on the earth. And Father, we commit ourselves to you that whatever you show us to do, we will certainly do.